0: Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme.
1: The first sound we create is a heartbeat. The first sound we hear is the music of a mother's breath. Her voice is the comfort melody that sends us to sleep. As we navigate our life path, we develop a surround sound of melodies and words that stir our emotions. Each moment, sings its own tune. Science tells us that we all conduct a kind of regular spring clean of our brains, storing long-term memories away in the safety of the neocortex, which is, if I was paying attention in class, the vast outer layer of the brain. It has lots of folds with grooves and ridges called sulci and gyri. You might say we all return to the fold, as it were, as we get older, but this is particularly the case when dementia is in the mix. The neocortex becomes our memory haven. Music, poetry and the arts are the gateway that takes us there. I spent the last year with the Global Brain Health Institute at Trinity College Dublin, working out how I, as a creative artist from Bohemia, might learn from the world of science and academia to develop a better understanding of our brain health. We've been exploring meaningful ways of collaboration between science and the arts in dementia care. There were 14 of us in a room in Trinity, and another 14 in a university teaching hospital, UCSF, in San Francisco. And we've all been working together, connecting online and in person. Artists, neurologists, food economists, dancers, a film director, clinicians and scientific researchers, as well as myself. We're all, in our own way, creative artists, inspiring each other to be more inquisitive, more understanding and more tolerant. We have in common the goal of breaking down the stigma associated with dementia and poor brain health. One day I asked my friend Valentin, an eminent neurologist from Nigeria, who sat across from my desk, what is the sound of dementia? Interesting question was his reply. We study it, we talk about it. We write about it, we photograph it, we follow its development, we treat it with medication and care. But no one asked me that question before, Mike. So what do you think dementia sounds like? And why should we listen to it? It must be quite a gentle sound, I think, one that responds easily to our changing emotions. Yes, of course, it sometimes loses control, and it may sound angry, sad or confused. And sometimes, as my friend Kevin explained about his Louis Body Dementia Nightmares, sometimes it's absolute hell, Mike. Yes, I wonder what that hell sounds like too. Is it a flattened A minor ninth chord with a diminished 5th over an XYZ bass? I don't know. And I have no idea what that chord would sound like either, although I'd like to figure it out. I thought about this some more and eventually composed the bass line of melody called The Sound of Dementia. It's not, as you might suspect, anything like The Sound of Silence. That song was about the inability of people to communicate with each other. But for me, The Sound of Dementia is all about communication. Why, you may ask, what purpose will this sound achieve? I don't know for sure, but I do know that voices in harmony achieve their best when supporting each other. My band of scientists and creative artists will soon arrive in Dublin from the Congo, Scotland, Nigeria, the Americas and Nepal for a gathering at Trinity College to celebrate Creative Brain Week. We will turn up the amps in the neocortex and see where it takes us. Our shared experience will create a shared sound to stir the emotions. We'll raise our voices in unison to help global efforts to address the exclusion of people with dementia from living their fullest lives. While the heart still beats, we can continue to hear and enjoy its music. And on our mother's breath, we will remain connected always. A river on to the sea far away from the high mountain stream to that place where you long to be a river rolls on to the sea down through the hills and the glade you roll on
0: through sunshine and rain
1: around the oak and the
0: In the 1950s, the New Yorker magazine began to feature a regular chronicle of city life by a writer known only as the Long-Winded Lady. Her whimsical, sardonic sketches, about nothing very much, led the talk of the town column in the magazine on subjects like the man who combed his hair. According to John Updike, the Long-Winded Lady put New York back in the New Yorker. It came as a surprise to some readers when, in publishing a collection of those pieces in 1969, the long-winded lady revealed herself to be Maeve Brennan, an Irish immigrant who'd only arrived in New York in her mid-twenties. Born in Dublin in January 1917, Maeve Brennan was a true child of the Irish Revolution. Her parents, Una and Bob, had led the fighting in Wexford, Active in the War of Independence and on the anti-treaty side in the Civil War, Bob Brennan was always on the run. So the first six years of Maeve's life were a time of disruption and danger for the family. One afternoon, some unfriendly men carrying revolvers came to our house, searching for my father she wrote in The Day We Got Our Own Back, an autofictional story published under her own name in The New Yorker in 1953. The instability of this early existence would seep into Maeve's stories throughout her life. In the early 1930s, Bob Brennan founded the Irish Press with Eamon de Valera. In 1934, when Maeve was 17, he was appointed Ireland's first ambassador to the United States and the entire family moved to Washington. At the end of Bob's stint, Maeve didn't return with the family. In Ireland, scarcely anybody is interested in anything but money and factories, her friend Dorothy McArdle had written to her. People who care about thinking and reading are getting desperate. Instead, Maeve moved to New York and got a job as a copy editor at Harper's Bazaar progressing in time to becoming a staff writer at The New Yorker. Her editor and faithful friend there, William Maxwell, recalled that to be around Maeve was to see style being reinvented. Photographs by Carol Bassinger show a beautiful Holly Golightly lookalike, dressed in black, hair piled high, the ash of her ever-present camel cigarette dangling dangerously. On skyscraper heels, she tottered along the male-dominated corridors of the New Yorker in a waft of Queer the Russie, a fragrance created by Chanel for women who dared to smoke in public. She downed double martinis in Costello's Bar on 3rd Avenue and entered into a chaotic, alcohol-soaked marriage with the writer Sinclair McElway. They lived in the suburb of Sneedon's Landing, which Maeve recreates as Herbert's Retreat in a series of stories about privileged New Yorkers who preen and make merry under the disdainful eye of their Irish servants. Her marriage didn't last. After her divorce, Maeve became a self-confessed traveller in residence. She hopped from apartment to hotel and borrowed summer houses from glamorous friends like Gerald and Sarah Murphy, Scott Fitzgerald's models for the divers in Tender is the Night. She said she could transport her entire household, all her possessions and her cats, in a taxi. During the 60s, she wrote what's widely regarded as her best work, stories set in Ireland where she had, at that time, no readership to speak of. These stories, collected posthumously as the springs of affection stories of Dublin, are now compared to Joyce's Dubliners. With an economy of character and setting, Maeve combines memoir and fiction as she features two couples, the Durdens and the Baggots, who live in turn at 48 Cherryfield Avenue in Ranilla, her childhood home. She portrays a marriage where the couple have lost the love, yet each remains obsessed with the other. Of the title story, Penelope Fitzgerald wrote... It carries an electric charge of resentment and quiet satisfaction in revenge that chills you right through. Alice Munro counted it as one of her favourite short stories of all time. Maeve Brennan's story The Eldest Child was selected for Best American Short Stories in 1968. But by then, writes her biographer Angela Burke, Maeve's life had begun to disintegrate as she wandered both physically and mentally. She lived for weeks in a tiny room off the women's lavatory at the New Yorker, with only a bed, a mirror and a fan. People sometimes saw her on the street, but after a time she disappeared completely. She spent the rest of her life in and out of hospitals and died in a nursing home in the Rockaways in November 1993, where nobody recognised her, not even, in the end, herself. To mention her in the company of Chekhov and Flaubert is only proper, wrote Edward Alby. It seems astonishing now that no Irish newspaper published an obituary at the time of her death but her recognition has come deservedly, if belatedly. A new generation of writers like Anne Inwright, Belinda McEwen, Claire louise Bennett and others have championed her work. And it's heartening to see a new edition of the Long-Winded Lady pieces with an introduction by Sinead Leeson, just published by Peninsula Press. Somebody said, we are real only in moments of kindness. Maeve Brennan wrote in her own introduction to her original Long-Winded Lady collection. Moments of kindness, moments of recognition. If there is a difference, it is a faint one. <laughs>
1: Style
2: someday. Old dream maker you
3: are. On the old road between Carlow and Kilkenny there's an innocuous junction where a minor road joins the major one and at that rural junction there's a lamppost I pass it several nights a week, and its light shines brightly on the surrounding hedges, throwing shadows on the gable wall of a solitary house. I have no idea why the lamppost is there, but I never pass it without expecting to see a huddle of children gathered in its wintry light. Not that there ever are any children there. The road is too dangerous, modern traffic too fast. Cars and lorries too frequent for it to be a safe space. But the sight of the lamp post, the brightness of the bulb, and the darkness of the night beyond the fall of its radiance lead me back to the lamp post that sat on the path opposite my childhood home. As a small boy, I remember there being just a handful of lamps in the village of Castle Dermot, and most of these were extinguished at midnight, all but two. The streetlight on the square remained burning until dawn. Locals called it a pilot light. The second bulb that stayed burning was at the entrance to the doctor's house on a hill above the village. But the light opposite our house in Abbeylands was more than just a lamp. The fact that it went dark at midnight never worried us children. We were fast asleep by then. On autumn winter and early spring nights the lamp threw its light from sundown and that pool of illumination became our nighttime playground we'd gather in clusters around the pole squatting on the rough path imagining some heat from the bulb above drawing lines in the dust for nighttime games of marbles sharing comics and leafing through 64 pagers to see what eventually happened to the Count of Monte Cristo, or whether Phineas Fogg and Passepartout really did make it around the world in 80 days. And sometimes, when the stand of trees that separated the road from the football pitch was bare of pine needles, we'd use the faint and shadowed glow as floodlighting for games of soccer. In those moments, there were idols aplenty in the half-light, Jimmy Greaves and Bobby Charlton. I was always Lev Yashin, the black spider, attempting heroics between the coats that were our goalposts. Back in the illuminated pool at the foot of the street lamp, we argued about the goals that were and weren't. We finished homework. We swapped yarns and told lies and boasted about things we had never done and never would do. And then the calls would come from open doors, and one by one the motley crew would be called in home. Being the last one standing was a mixed blessing, up latest, but suddenly aware of the darkness beyond and the absence of friends. When snow fell, it danced a particular dance in the feeble light from the bulb above us. Mesmerising and hinting at the possibility of a day off school. As spring arrived, the lamp was later and later in lighting. And by summer, we didn't need its beam at all, and the grass regrew on the path beneath the lamp post. And then, come autumn, we reassembled in the space that was our gathering place, in the light that was, in its own strange way, our sacred heart lamp providing solace and solidarity, and a place where problems were solved and friendships deepened and dreams became, even for an hour, real possibilities. And now, as I pass that solitary lamppost on that intersection of rural roads, I'm taken back to the pool of light in Abbeylands. And I imagine our diverse troop of young boys and girls reassembling for one last chat. And I recognise the fact that so many would be ghosts, phantoms of the people they once were, loitering at the shoulders of those of us who remember and never, ever wish to forget. <laughs>
4: I opened my mouth and nothing came out. This had been happening a lot lately. I kept losing my voice. I was reduced to whispering until I went to see a near nose and throat specialist who scolded me. Whispering's the very worst thing you can do. It puts a terrible strain on your vocal cords. He prescribed complete voice rest. I was 22 and I was mute on doctor's orders. I couldn't do my job. I couldn't socialise. I couldn't even complete simple tasks like shopping or buying a train ticket without a notebook and pen. I couldn't chat, which is in the top three of my favourite things to do. The ear, nose and throat specialist sent me to a speech therapist, who took one look at my name on the form, this was in London, and said, Mary Cato Flanagan, convent girl? Yeah, I see a lot of you. The nuns teach you good manners, but also to suppress your rage. She continued, the voice is closely linked to emotions. I can give you exercises to do to release the tension you're holding in your throat, but in my view, until you go to therapy, this is going to keep happening. I certainly didn't want to go to therapy. I didn't want to look at myself. I was afraid the reason my voice was failing was tied up with the reason I had a chaotic love life. But I needed my voice to function in the world. And so I committed to therapy. Now, talk therapy is a slow and painful process, especially when the reason you're doing it is because you can't talk. And at first it can feel like things are getting worse, not better, because you have to unpack the junk you don't want to look at. But I persisted with it and I knew it was helping. Still, after a while, I lamented to a friend... That I just wanted someone to magically heal me. And she said, oh honey, you can't heal your soul with just psychotherapy. You should try Reiki. So I tried Reiki. I lay there while a woman ran her hands over the air a few inches above my body. And I remembered my sisters and me laughing ourselves sick when a friend of ours paid to have her aura massaged. But I felt suffused with an undeniable sense of well-being which kept me coming back. And then Reiki led to acupuncture, which took place in an alternative health centre. And there I learned there were many more healing modalities on offer. Soon I was dedicating more and more of my spare time to drumming circles and vision boards, yoga weekends and tantric workshops. At one stage, I told my sisters... My rebirther says that every feeling fully experienced inevitably turns to joy. And my sister Rachel said, we'll unpack the rest of that sentence in a minute, but let's start with this. You have a rebirther? But it was at a Heal Your Life workshop based on the book by Louise Hay that I confided to a woman that I wished I could find the thing that would mean I was fixed. And she asked me, Why do you think you haven't? And I said, because if I had, I would be able to sustain a romantic relationship for more than a minute and a half. And she said, what if your life is exactly how it's supposed to be? The answer came with a clang of clarity. If I'd been granted my heart's desire when I was 22 to meet someone and fall in love and live happily ever after... I never would have had the experience of feeling serenity in the aftermath of climbing to the top of the bobbly gardens in Florence or done yoga on a beach in Thailand or hugged the baobab trees in the Okavanga Delta of Botswana. And more, I wouldn't have witnessed the courage of battered spirits persisting day after day. I could have missed meeting the fellow travellers seeking solace in sacred spaces, If I'd been granted my wish, I might never have had the time to develop what I think could be my superpower, making friends. My wild and wonderful life has grown around my ancient scars, like a pearl around a grain of sand. Beautiful, not despite it, but because of it. So I wasn't seeking anything at all when I struck up a conversation with a nun at a luggage carousel in Copenhagen Airport, and then I realised she was Sister Brege, who's world-renowned for her healing gifts. And as we were parting, she produced from under her robes a bracelet of turquoise wooden beads and said, I'm a matchmaker too, as she slipped it onto my wrist. It was a rosary bracelet and I was delighted with it, although I thought it was a strange thing to say to a middle-aged woman, especially as I've worn a wedding ring for years a trick known to female solo travellers giving the impression of a male protector about to appear. And yet, as if by magic, not long after that, a tall, dark, handsome man took me by the hand and then took me into his arms and into his heart. And after all those gurus, shamans and voodoo priestesses, it was a good old-fashioned Irish nun who finally broke the spell and granted my wish. And as you hear, I found my voice too.
5: University, library, ghosts. It lies squat in scrubbed concrete, a bunker fueled by brain cells. Inside, a labyrinth without a center. I ought to lay a trail of crumbs to get back to the lobby area, but shuffle through the aisles and rooms, alert for any scholar in a corner with slicked back hair. Edwardian suit, staring at me as if I am transparent. The thought of being here at night, alone with millions of authors mouldering in unremembrance, believing they can only come to life from all the stacks of catacombs if they're exposed to mortal eyes. Now it's closing time. The corridors are emptying, silence deepens, Apart from what my inner ear can hear, A shuffling sound, or creeping, As when outside the mouth of Hades Odysseus poured blood in a trench, Then listened for the coming of the shades, To drink, gain substance once again.
2: ú Has si ag dridumníos congerí lenig hele gos bar an geny na i dro an tepel do vi gunne na markna er lei ég goúhe tach na haglese an bo er fút slaân treis na feringe an pinoer innig hasaf mar dro rú na konvinú all I dig hana Siachán leanta, lina níag lina de igúri duva, sástar, Schlechter sítar, adviter. dasgannáhann amár a ráulúsa gacháinna. Chórhoc Velásquez, ní quín tóri sá ar chánvás, sín síd gafáinach dó, gach miánrád fáé hollúsan lé, duva ar gófs ná Siachán, og esplodra hilar boil calin sacarina lenof kota galloina ogsa folt scarlodach ercle tan conrosnaste an sagerternol tort heird de shin lenach vermir a genwas stache herske noch as dagas a cunje lene her tahana an vron o lena stachege lena an alienthora a hahavege Verdish son shall omlan ver umlan and tet ars the shawlene skoobene. Lasmut tan down in a gier hohel, a gahru, a plaeske, an erod a askene, feck for untus na nuntus, pobble balle her conslane augend, meint her and froght a fracher and shiryacht, gachre dragged a faint and Funeral. They are moving closer towards one another up at the top of the hill. The mourners converging on the chapel, black against the sky, marks on the retina of the day, walking earnestly to the church gates, across the wet road, slick after the rain, the gable beckoning like a steward directing them. They move steadily, following the conventions. Inside, the seats have filled line after line of black figures. They stand, they bow, they sit, they confess. Everyone knows the rights of the dead. Velasquez would put these mourners on canvas. They sit patiently for him, every small thing under the light of day, black on black in the pews, the odd grey head, and joyful in their midst, a girl in the fourth row with her bright green coat and head of scarlet hair. On the left, the shining coffin. Beyond that, the priest on the altar. Vermeer too would fill his canvas easily. Or Dega would stand in front of his work, filling in the colours of sorrow, wearing his artist's smock. They would capture the entirety of this age-old set with their brushes. Outside, the world is in chaos, changing, exploding, the climate cursing. But here, wonder of wonders, a community gathered to say goodbye, people of the parish waiting on eternity, everything ready for the Creator's paint.
6: On this morning's programme we heard The Sound of Dementia by Mike Hanrahan, The Long-Winded Irish Lady, Maeve Brennan at The New Yorker by Lourdes Mackey, Underneath the Lamp Post was by John McKenna, my Voice by Mary-Kate O'Flanagan. University Library Ghosts, a poem by James Harper. And Socrates or Funeral, a poem by Catherine Foley. The music today was A River Rolls On, composed and performed by Mike Hanahan with Sandy Kelly, Lisa Lamb, Aldock, and the Forget-Me-Nots Choir. Moon River by Henry Mancini, sung by Audrey Hepburn, from the soundtrack to Breakfast at Tiffany's. Moonglow by the Benny Goodman Quartet. Trillo, a Scandinavian folk song arranged by Ale Muller, recorded for Sunday Miscellany by Veritas Chamber Choir from St. Columba's College. And the soloist there was Emily McCarthy. The choir director is Eunan MacDonald. And lastly, Orphe Suite 3, Journey to the Underworld by Philip Glass. And the pianist was David Jalbert. Mary-Kate of Flanagan's essay, My Voice, is in the current anthology from this programme. It's called Sunday Miscellany, a selection 2018 to 2023, which you can get in bookshops now. The publisher is New Island Books. And Mary-Kate's one-woman play, Making a Show of Myself, is on tour nationally with a performance coming up in Wexford Arts Centre this Friday, the 8th of March, International Women's Day, and there are more dates planned for Smock Alley in Dublin later this month. See makingashowofmyself.com for details. That's all one word, Making a Show of Myself. And if you're interested in Creative Brain Week, mentioned in Mike's essay, it runs from tomorrow to Saturday the 9th of March at the Science Gallery Trinity College in Dublin. There are lots of free but ticketed in-person events. And their website is creativebrainweek.com. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. And you can find out more about this and other RTE arts and culture programmes on the website rte.ie forward slash culture.
0: You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.